Please take the Word of God and turn to Mark chapter number 15 this morning with me. We're going to pick back up in our exposition of the book of Mark this morning. Pick up right where we left off and pray that it's a, a blessing to you. It'll be a simple message this morning. But I pray that it reminds us of some old truths that are foundational for our Christian life. Now we have an understanding that the gospel is not entry level um, Christianity. Um, it is not only what brings us into the faith, it is what keeps us in the faith and will ultimately be our final salvation. And that is the work of Christ that is before us. So if you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of uh, reverence for it. We'll pick up our reading this morning in verse number 15. You read these words. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. And then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple and they twisted crown, a crown of thorns, put it on his head and began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his clothes, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. And then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, King of the Jews. Let's pray. And again, Lord, we, um, we come to you simply to say that we love you. And that we praise you, Father. We praise you for the mercy that you extend to us each and every day. But most of all, Father, we praise you for the mercy that we have in Christ. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the constant reminders. We read the Gospels. We read the epistles, Father. And we even read the Old Testament. We're reminded of uh, the man who would come. The God-man. Jesus Christ. Father, and that he would come for sinners like us. That we might be like him and be forever with Him. And for that, Father, we praise You. We thank You that we can read of that this morning. Father, we know that there are droves of multitudes of people, tribes, nations, and tongues this morning and without any Bibles, without any, uh, without the Word of God translated in their own tongue. And if, if they've heard anything, they've heard stories. What a blessing it is this morning to, to open up the bread of life, Father, to break it and to be able to commune with you and God's people. We don't know why grace has been extended to us, um, but we revel in the fact that it has. So, Father, we pray this morning that we would honor you in all things. Father, how we handle the Word, how we receive the Word. Father, we just pray that, um, that you'd use it as you see fit, um, and that ultimately it would make us more like your Son. God, that it would instill in us 
an even greater love than what we have for you this morning. And thus provoke us um, to an even greater holiness. Um, Father, help us to be holy as you are holy. We need that this morning. So, Father, we entrust the next hour to you and pray that you'll accomplish your work in each and every one of us. No regards, Father, for age or gender, um, but, Father, that you would reach each and every soul in a mighty way, meeting our needs and making us more like your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. As I said, we've worked to get here. It's taken some time over the course of the last year and a half or so. But we're here. Really the pinnacle of all things. Pinnacle of the Gospels. Pinnacle of Old Testament narrative. And really what we've been working and laboring toward. Not that the work is done, but that now that the work is complete, that is Jesus' work, um, everything will flow from it from here on out. The epistles, the book of Revelation, um, all that we have contained in the New Testament, and all that we see here, it grows out of this. We need have no need of anything else than that which has already been accomplished and the suffering and death of our Lord. And the suffering and death of our Lord has been a fundamental doctrine to Christianity throughout the history of the church. Uh, the Apostles' Creed says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, regardless of your position on creeds and confessions, the point is not to advocate for anything in particular, but simply to say, that the suffering and death of our Lord has been fundamental to Christianity throughout the ages. Why? Because this is what the Word of God teaches. And again, this is what we've been working towards throughout human history up to this point. It's prophesied in the Old Testament, and it's elevated in the New. We read in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and verse number 3, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and was hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by His stripes we are healed. What we have pictured for us in Isaiah is of a coming Messiah that would be a suffering Savior. Hence the words despised, rejected, grieved, afflicted, wounded, stricken, smitten, bruised, chastised. And by His stripes we are healed. Um, this is confirmed in the New Testament, even in Christ's teaching. Mark chapter 8, just a few chapters earlier, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, it says. And after three days, rise again. It's pretty clear that Jesus knew exactly what He must do. Uh, one commentator writes, that that which is arbitrariness on the part of men such as Pilate and Herod declaring him innocent, scourging him, crucifying him, 
is subject to the divine must. The Scripture and Jesus are pretty clear. Though the religious rulers, the governors, Rome, pagan soldiers play significant parts in the crucifixion of our Lord, there is no doubt that there is a divine necessity that we see laid upon our Lord, a divine must, if you will. As we, as we looked in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. It was His mission, it was His goal, it was His end, it was His life that was leading up to His death. Everything is surrounding this thing. And to be honest, our Lord's entire life has been an episode of suffering. In submitting Himself to the Father's will, simply taking upon human flesh, laying aside certain majesties and rights to enter in as human, to feel the pain, the agony, the hunger, the thirst, the weariness that God ought never had to have endured. This entire human life of His was an exercise in humility. But there can be no doubt that on the night of His betrayal, there was a new level of suffering to be endured. We saw weeks ago that flowing, uh, following his agony in the garden, his betrayal of Judas, which was suffering in and of itself, um, that he would stand trial by the leaders of Israel. It was informal and illegal, but a trial nonetheless. Already found guilty prior to the trial, our Lord would, um, they would, they would find a suitable offense to charge him with. What would it be? Blasphemy. Next, he would stand trial under Rome. Pontius Pilate particularly. We spoke weeks ago primarily of, of his encounter with Pilate and Pilate's interaction with the Jews regarding Barabbas. Again, the charge is sham and Pilate knows it, yet he capitulates with the Jewish people and the final verdict was given and the Jews received their reward. Barabbas was released and Jesus would be crucified. Thus verse 15 says, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. We didn't give much attention at all, if any, to the text there in verse 15, so we would pick it up now where the text says, and after he had scourged him, he would be crucified. It's worth noting that even with all the detail that we're given concerning our Lord's death, there's really not much concerning his physical sufferings. Not really. I know that we seem to have a lot, but, but it almost seems like passing remarks, doesn't it? And He was crucified. And He was scourged. That in a sense, the real emphasis seems not to be laid upon the physical pain of Christ, but upon His rejection, His dejection, the mocking of the crowd, the ridicule. But it may also be that it didn't need to be said. While we need an explanation of what flogging is, or crucifixion is, there probably wasn't a person in the first century that read the book of Mark, whether Gentile or Jew, that when they read the term scourged by the Romans, or they read of the crucifixion of Rome, that terror didn't strike their hearts because they understood exactly what our Lord endured. It may very well be that as Mark writes, there needs no, they, they, the reader needs no explanation. Um, but maybe we do. So Mark's readers would have understood that scourging by the Romans was no small matter. We continue to know of, of, of this, um, this event, this scourging, this flogging, because it's very well recorded throughout church history, whether it's 
Jewish Josephus, whether it's uh, Roman uh, Josephus or Philo, or it's Christian historians like Eusebius, um, we have a very good record of exactly what a scourging would look like. This kind of scourging the Romans regularly inflicted is, uh, is, is very well documented. Thus we can say with confidence what our Lord would have endured when He was scourged. And this is a sobering account. I, it almost, you almost read it and you don't know what to say. You know? Um, almost no commentary even needed as our Lord approaches his end in some sense, you know. But in the scourging, generally what you would find is that there's a pillar that stood about four feet high. Metal rings would be on each side that the culprit or the condemned would hold on to. The one to be flogged was stripped down to the waist and bent over the post. Roman soldiers would stand on each side of the condemned and each one would be equipped with a short leather whip. The whip would have a handle about six to eight inches long and it would be made of wood and coming out of that there would be a number of leather thongs. Each one would be braided and in the midst of each would be bone, lead, and glass that would be woven into it. The Roman soldiers would take turns in this scourging. So Pilate hands him over to the Roman soldiers and they would bend him over the post and they would take the whips one at a time and they would, they would put lashings across the back of our Lord, ripping flesh every single time. There would be a grunt and a lash, almost in a rhythmic fashion. Grunt and a lash. Sources tell us that this, uh, was, this form of punishment was so cruel that flesh would be peeled off the back um, such that within a matter of a minute, bone or muscle would be exposed. It often led to the death of a prisoner even before they would ever even make it to the cross. Simply due to blood loss or the shock of the heart, um, the body couldn't often sustain the type of, um, the type of um, physical um, pain that these men would endure, that these men would inflict upon the condemned. That's what we see in our Lord. That's where we find ourselves in verse 15 in the text. Um, we find our Lord um, after exiting the garden in utter agony, such to the point to where He's drained from energy to stumble upon the ground, sweating drops of blood. He's immediately betrayed and taken. He stands before trial. He's been up all night. He's not got a wink of sleep. You can imagine just the exhaustion that would be um, physically as he's endured the entirety of the night awake. Not only that, he stood trial three different times being taken from praetorium to courtyard to Annas to Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin to where they... And just the emotional type of, uh, in, of, of anxiety that it would cause for the common man. Um, as they, 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 they cast him around and, and cast lots upon him and, and, and cover his face just under the Jewish trial, beat him. And, and no doubt by this time, his face is swollen and somewhat disfigured. Blood either from the sweats, from, from the sweat and agony of the garden, or it's dripping down his face from the fist of the, of the, of the Jewish people. They hand him over to Pilate. Pilate is no friend of Jesus. Um, who hands him over to his soldiers who will, who will induce a flogging upon him that would, that would often kill the common man. And this is where we find ourselves in the text. Our Lord is beaten, He's battered, He's bruised. No doubt He's without energy. No doubt there's a great deal of blood loss. And verse number 16, then the soldiers led Him away. 
into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. Verse 16, we see the Roman soldiers receiving their prisoner. The soldiers take him away into the palace, called together the entire Roman cohort. It's interesting, our garrison. You know, um, after Pilate frees the insurrectionist, this rebel, he, he, he turns Jesus over to the soldiers. He's done. He's washed his hands of it. And now they're his. What do they do? They summon the entire guard. I mean, you can ask yourself why, really. That's what I asked myself as I went through this. Why? Um, was it because they were afraid that this man was going to fight? Was it because they were afraid he was going to run? Was it because they were afraid he was going to revolt? I mean, what were they so concerned about? Up to this point, he's went like a lamb to the slaughter, and he's opened not his mouth. He's raised no hand. He's spoken uh, not against them unless he was provoked by oath. Um, he's no threat. So why the entire garrison? It could simply be because they, as they often did, wanted them to join in on the crucifixion games. You know, the more the merrier mocking. The more the merrier the ridicule. The more the merrier the scourging, maybe they thought. Thus they called together the entire legion of men that are around. Why? So that they could continue um, the scorn of our Lord. Verse 17. What do they do? The games commence. D.A. Carson writes, he says, here we have humanity at its worst. A scene of vicious mockery. End quote. What they're going to do now is they're going to take the charge that they placed upon Him that He's the King of the Jews, that He's an insurrectionist, that He's seeking to overthrow Rome, and they're going to use it as the very means to mock and ridicule our Lord. Verse number 17, what do they do? They clothe Him with purple. The idea is that they clothe Him with a purple garment. This was uh, most likely a trooper's cloak. Um, the, the soldiers would often wear a garment of, of this sort. It's probably faded. It's worn. It's, um, it's, it's, it's scarlet in nature. Probably possibly faded. Um, and thus mimicking the, the, the color of purple that would imitate that which a king would wear. Purple would be the, the, the uh, color of royalty. It was a, 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 rare, a, a rare thread um, in which would be saved particularly for the elite. Thus, kings and royal and people of high status would be carrying or would be wearing robe regular purple regularly. What do they do? They take off um, a faded purple worn soldier's garment and they place it upon our Lord. After that, they twist the crown of thorns and put it on his head. The Roman soldiers in this instance weren't, uh, weren't even possibly necessarily trying to torture him physically, although it was no doubt torturous. Um, the primary goal here was to mock him. He had his royal robe, and now what does a king need? He needs a crown. So they weave together a braided crown of thorns. Some predicted at least some thorns an inch in um, length, maybe more. They press it upon his brow, and may I say, not so lightly. And they begin to salute him. Verse number 18, Hail, King of the Jews. The mockery continues. As they begin to salute him as if he were a Roman Caesar. Hail, King of the Jews. How grotesque of a picture. 
Even if this man was guilty of said crimes, this is not justice. This is abuse. Even apart from the fact that they're doing this to the purest man that had ever lived, the God-man, it's abhorrent to think about man's inhumanity to man at this point. Here's a man who's already broken and bleeding, no doubt bruised and swollen, a bleeding face due to Jewish disdain. He's flogged, flesh ripped from his back, areas of bone protruding. Uh, now they press a crown of thorn upon his head, dress him like a king, only to laugh and mock him with sar- sarcastic salutations. Hail, King of the Jews. And you can just hear the crowd erupt as the entire garrison erupts in laughter, possibly, after someone gets the bright idea to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him, verse 19 says, on the head with a reed and spat on him. Bowing the knee, they worshipped him. Then they struck him on the head, it says, with a reed. The reed could also be translated simply a staff or a stick. Matthew's Gospel, we find the soldiers acquiring a staff and actually putting it in Jesus' hand. His right hand, the hand of power. No doubt as a mock scepter. You can imagine them saying, as they said with, Hail, King of the Jews, every king needs a scepter, ha! You know, every king needs a symbol of authority. They'd hand it to our Lord, and who knows if he even has the strength in, the, in his humanity to hold it up. So at some point, he either drops it or they take it from him and they begin to beat him on the head with it repeatedly. You can imagine that it would be extremely difficult to avoid the crown of thorns. So as they beat him upon the head with his staff or this stick, um, the crown of thorns is, is going further and further with every strike. The text says, and they spat on him. As vile as the act is, spitting upon a person is a vile action and almost the height of disrespect. But it could even be more than that here, in keeping with the theme of Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, one commentator, William Lane, writes, he says, the act of spitting on him may be interpreted as a parody of the kiss of homage, which was customary in the East. The idea could be very well illustrating that what we have here is a king who's paid a visit to this country, and when the king comes forth, one is to pay homage with a kiss. You know, Psalm chapter 2, kiss the son. And as they approach him to possibly pay homage with a kiss, um, they they, they greet him with with the spit, uh, the saliva of their mouth, in utter disdain for this man, this king of the Jews. Bowing the knee, the text says, they worship Him. They finish off the episode, they get on their knees, possibly prostrate themselves to the ground with mocking in their mouths and ridicule and disdain in their hearts. Or maybe it was just a game that they often played with men. Um, They bow before Him and salute Him as King. William Lane says again, Mark's description suggests a kind of grotesque vaudeville. Jesus, bruised and bleeding, pushed among the coarse soldiers who were gathered in expectation of a few minutes of entertainment. Maybe the only fitting words are from the hymn writer, Bernard of Clairvaux. O sacred head now wounded with grief and shame way down, now scornfully surrounded with thorns thy only crown. How were thou pale with anguish and sore abuse and scorn? How does that visage languish, which was one bright as morn? What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest man? For this thy dying sorrow, the pity, thy pity without end. 
you want to, as a pastor, a preacher, as a teacher, you want to kind of comment on things as you go, but you almost just search for words to say about things like this. Verse number 20, And when they had mocked Him, they too they took the purple off of Him and put His own clothes on Him and led Him out to crucify Him. At some point, it's not fun anymore. It's lost its luster. I mean, after all, He's not doing anything. You can't arouse Him to anger. He's not fighting back. He's not responding. He's just taking it. At some point, uh, mockers and, and, and the reprobate and the ridiculers um, lose their interest in men who won't revile for reviling's sake. Or maybe it was just that they needed to get the job done. Time is up and it's time to move on. So when they had finished with the mocking and the ridicule, they took the purple off of him and put his own clothes back on him, no doubt blood-stained and worn, and led him out to crucify him. But I would like to draw your attention to the phrase, they led him out. We know from the other Gospel accounts that they led him outside the city. They who? The Roman soldiers. Verse 21 tells us that the soldiers also compel a man, um, Simon the Cyrenian, or a man of Cyrene, to help with this. A point they're, they're on their way to the place of crucifixion. There's no sh- this would be no short trip for our Lord. Um, he's, he's, he's practically half dead at this point. Um, his energy is drained from blood loss and just from exertion and being up all night. So the Roman soldiers often have the, the, the condemned carry their cross, but, but, but without a doubt he's unable to in his humanity. So the Roman soldiers press a passerby into service. Um, a certain man by the name of Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And this, would not, you know, this wouldn't have been an uncommon thing to see. Roman soldiers would often require the service of people to do their bidding, carry their equipment, especially the Jews. There's no real need to take this in, as an initial virtuous act on behalf of Simon. Um, it, it seems that he was pressed into it. And it may not have even been an act of benevolence, but that he was compelled, the text says. And when you're compelled by Roman soldiers, there's not really much that you can do um, as an opportunity to decline. So, so what does he do? He takes the cross. He bears the cross up to Mount Golgotha for our Lord. Um, where does he take him? He takes him again outside the city to a place called Golgotha. Verse number 22. And they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It was called the place of the skull simply because it resembled a skull. Um, it was a place, though, that would strike terror in the minds of men. Again, which may be why all Mark needs to say is that, that our Lord was crucified without much of the gory details. It would strike terror in the minds of Jews and Romans alike because it was a place of public execution. It was set up on a hill. It's not like today where we hide in caverns and caves or in jails um, or prisons and the capital execution of, of the men who have um, violated the greatest of laws and most indecent acts upon man. They didn't hide. What they wanted was a place on Interstate 26 that as thousands of people passed by every single day, there was a hill there that they would crucify and condemn the lawless. They wanted to send the message to men that if you, you, you stand against Rome, that this is the end. 
You know, this is what will happen. They wanted everyone to see. You know, you may think, why are you telling me this today in the sense of, of even exposing some of the, the gruesome acts of, of, um, of Rome against our Lord? Well, they wanted everyone to see. They wanted the children to come by. They wanted the mothers and fathers to see. It would have been a place that was totally exposed up on a hill where all could see that when you stand against Rome, this is what you stand against. They desired for all eyes to see. Thus, they positioned themselves upon a mount called Golgotha, a mount that would have been seen by, by, the, by the multitudes of, of men to distract terror in the hearts of these men. Where was it? Outside the city. The soldiers proceeded to do that which was necessary for all execution of criminals, taking him through the gates so that he would not die inside the bounds of the city of Jerusalem, but outside the city. Jesus would die as an exile outside the gates. It seems like a little detail, but it's really not. You may remember in the Old Testament when the sin offering was made, it was to be taken where? Outside the camp. Leviticus 4.21 The unclean lepers had to live in a certain location. You want to guess where? Outside the camp. Leviticus 13.46 under the Old Covenant, when a capital offender was to be executed, uh, where do you think they executed the capital offender? Leviticus 24.14, outside the camp. During Jeremiah's day, it would take on an even more ominous understanding. It was where we would learn of a place called Gehenna, a place that was a garbage heap in its origination, but it would eventually become the place where the capital offenders' bodies would be cast upon an ever-burning fire where the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies. Our Lord would use it as an illustration of hell itself. This was located outside the camp, outside the city, outside of Jerusalem. It would be even greater than that though. You'll remember in the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve who were what? Cast out of the garden related to their sin and their disobedience and rebellion against God. The nation of Israel and their covenant with God would be promised blessing upon covenant obedience and cursing upon covenant disobedience. Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. What was the major part of the judgment? The judgment that many even to this day continue um, to, to, to lean upon the casting out of the people of God out of the land. They would disinherit the land through the acts of the enemy, but ultimately because of their disobedience, God would cause it upon them. So the very act of the Roman soldiers taking Jesus outside the camp was a statement in and of itself to what they thought of this man, both Rome and Jews. Our Lord is being led outside the city to a place called Golgotha, to be made a spectacle to all people, but also to be consumed as a sin offering, to be ostracized as one who's unclean, to be led away as a criminal to die, to face hell itself, to be treated as a sinner and a rebel against God, to be cast out of a land that is rightfully His. Why? Not for His own sin, but for sin nonetheless. For our sin, to bear our curse. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 10, you read these words. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people with His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For we have no continuing city, but we seek the One to come. That Jesus was to die and suffer outside the camp. A sinner's death. A cursed man. Why? So that we might go forth to Him. Verse 24, and when they crucified Him. That's where they crucified Him. One commentator says, death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of a pagan world. Crucifixion stood for pain. It stood for torture of the most excruciating kind. Even the term excruciating. When you think of that, what do you think of? The worst kind of pain possible. In fact, the term excruciating is a term that originates from the Latin cruce, which means cross. The term ek means out of. In, the, or in Latin, it could be term, interpreted out of the cross. The English word excruciating is born out of this concept of the cross. It stood for one of the most cruel forms of judgment known to man. Rome even knew this. To the extent that, that it wasn't a common punishment for Rome. Rarely would you ever see a Roman crucified. They saved it for the worst of sinners outside the camp. Foreigners, Jewish people, other pagans, but Romans. Only, only high treason would be crucified. Why? Because they understood the nature of it as well. It stood not only for pain, but it stood for shame. Not only was it physical torture, but a, but a, but a man would be stripped naked to induce not only physical torture, but also emotional shame as he was, he, was, he was laid bare there upon the cross. A cross in the ancient world would not have been a cute little emblem or a piece of jewelry that's sentimental. It would have been an instrument of death. The reason that we can think of it sentimentally is because we understand the fullness of the Gospel and the grace that He's extended to us through Christ. But I think it's too important to remember this morning what the cross has become, but also what the cross is and what it was. It was an instrument of death. But it was also more than that. It was the emblem of a curse. Do you know why Jesus had to be crucified? Because to hang upon a tree was to become a curse or to be a curse. Deuteronomy 21-22, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree. But you shall surely bury him in that day so that he, you will not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged, uh, for, for he who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. One writer writes these words. He says, The present case takes the judicial process a step beyond execution. It's more than execution. To the exposure of the course of, as a public proclamation of the satisfaction of justice. The principle being exemplified is that, is that all theocratic, theocratic law administration must operate in the service of covenant religion. He that is hanged is cursed of God. The condemned will have been guilty of offenses declared accursed in the covenant sanctions. As one executed, he would, be vis he would visibly embody the curse of God poured out as a human carcass 
exposed to the birds and the prey and the beasts. A man hung on a tree was an expression of the ultimate and the curse of God on the fallen race. There were many Old Testament offenses that were capital punished in nature, meaning they were worthy of the death penalty. But when one was hung on a tree, it was because he had so violated the covenant between God and Israel. He was to be the embodiment of the judgment of God before men. He was to be displayed as a public example of divine justice and bringing about the covenantal curses stipulated in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. This was not just for any ordinary criminal. It was reserved for someone who had so violated the covenant with God that the form of His death must display to the world, particularly the people of God, the divine curse that was laid upon His life and the very anger and wrath of God. You say, really? This is how Paul understood it. Galatians 3.10 says, for as as many are, are the works of the law are under the curse. Did you know that? Anyone who is under the works of the law is under the curse. For it is written, he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ's death by crucifixion was more than a simple Roman execution. Under old covenant law, He was going to be condemned as a covenant breaker under the wrath and almighty hand of an almighty God. There He is. Hanging on that tree. Nails through His hands and feet. Bleeding out. You know, and it's easy for us in the moment to get sentimental, isn't it? Or at least sympathetic. You know, we were just talking just a couple weeks ago, some of us here, about the Passion movie. You remember that? It's almost two decades ago. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm aging to speak about watching it two decades ago as, a, as an adult man. Um, but there, were, there were many dangers in making a movie like that, you know? There's difficulties in presenting to an unbelieving world um, the gospel. You know, so much after that, even me as an unbeliever during the time, I mean, essentially rejecting God, you know, sympathizes, oh poor Jesus. You know, and maybe you're thinking that now as we go through and we speak of the of of of, of the nature of the things that have transpired in Jesus' life, um, what we have a tendency to do is to sit back and say, oh poor Jesus. Don't get me wrong, the scene should move us. As we read through it, don't think for a moment that the correct response is to, is to walk away and say, oh, well, man, that was interesting. I didn't know Rome did that, or I didn't know that the Jews um, uh, articulated or, or, or operated in that fashion. I didn't know necessarily that text with just a total academic understanding or to be tentilated in the, in the mind because now you have facts that you did not know. The point of, of, of biblical narrative, one of the aims of, of Genesis and Exodus and, and, and the Gospels as they lay out the story of redemption is that it might that you might see the Christ 
That you might see His pain, that you might endure with Him in some sense His agony, enter in with His sufferings, that it may affect you and move you because of the evil and the depravity of man, but also just, just, just the nature of the sacrifice. And if it, it doesn't, you don't understand the Gospel. At least in some sense. I'm not saying that you need to, 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 to fall down broken and weep in just this external extent of, of, of ripping your garments and shaving your head. But in some sense, the Gospel must invade the entirety of man. It should affect us this morning. It should affect you. And as you think about your Lord going to His death and what men did to Him, and you think about the curse that is placed upon all men and that the wrath of God abides on us, and that Jesus Christ enters into the world and He endures that curse for us. But, but, but don't think for one moment, oh, poor Jesus. He's not the victim here. You know, he's he's Jesus, the son of God, not only king of the Jews, but king of all the world. And he has not lost one ounce of control in the midst of all of this. You know, the difficulty is for us, like the difficulty of Roman soldiers and the Jewish people. And that, that, that it is difficult for us in the moment to think of him as a king here, but he's a king nonetheless. He is totally in control of, of the events that are transpiring before Him. Don't think necessarily of the things happening to Him, but think of the things um, that, that He is enduring willfully, soulfully, primarily for the work of the Father and for the sake of you. That this is your, the, your King regally moving forward to your redemption and the glory of God. He is no victim here. Um... There is no social injustice here, you know, in the sense of of victimizing Jesus. I love in verse 23, you read these words, and they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. You know, myrrh in the ancient world had narcotic property, so it was common that during the crucifixion that some of the pious women particularly would bring wine and myrrh and they would, they, they, they would give it to the one who was condemned. As he's there agonizing in pain to ease the suffering, they would, they would try to give him uh, these the, the substances so that it would sort of make the cross more endurable. Um, but he says no. Um, and many of them did it very piously, devoted to these people um, to help and aid them in the process. Rome didn't care. I mean, it was much easier to crucify a drugged up man, you know, than it was one who was totally of sound mind. But our Lord says no. Ever wonder why? Well, could it be that he desired to keep a soundness of mind? Could it be that he desired to endure the cross with all of his faculties? Could it be that he desired to keep his mind under control that he would not be deterred from the cup that he was about to drink? That the Father gave him a work to do and he was here to do it and he would not be deterred no matter the suffering. That he was fully in control the entirety of the time and he would not be deterred. That he understood what he was doing. One writer puts it in these words, he says, in his self-giving there would be no self-sparing. That he was determined to drink the cup fully and consciously to the very last dregs, and he would not be deterred. And the rest of that quote by G.C. Burkauer I read earlier reads like this, God's action does not run like a second line beside the line of man's action. But it's like an invisible hand which rules and guides all human action from the very beginning to the end. 
Through the mesh of human arbitrariness runs the thread of God's plan and action. That, but, but that which is arbitrariness on the part of men such as Pilate and Herod declaring him innocent, scourging him and crucifying him is subject to the divine must. Don't think for a moment that Pilate and that Herod and that Rome and that Israel and that Satan himself and Judas as they conspire and the nation's rage as they conspire against our Lord that for one moment our Lord was a victim. He was a king in all of His glory, a suffering Savior who had a work to do and that every single strike that He endures, every ounce of flesh that exits off of His body, every tear that He cries um, is, is, is a willful, voluntary action to, to complete the work in which He has to do. That His suffering is by them. But it's most of all by Him. And how does He respond? How does our Lord respond? What does He do? Does He strike them from heaven? Does He call legions of angels? Does He... In the moment, you know, when you study the Gospels, what you find is that our Lord upon the cross says seven different phrases. Could be that that's all he said. We don't know. Who knows? Could be that that's all the strength that he had to say was seven in his humanity. Right? But of all the things that he said, what would you have said? It's like Job last week, right? And that happens. I mean, things just fly out of your mouth because that's the man you are. Right? That's when you find out who an angry man is. You know, when things seem you lose control because of circumstances around you. That's exactly what you see in our Lord here. You see that when He's pressed beyond measure, you find out what kind of man He is. And oftentimes the type of man that He is is displayed in the actions, um, in these dire circumstances, but also in the words that He speaks. Without the heart, He has nothing to hide now. You know, in those moments, it's like I have nothing else to lose. Job, you got nothing else to lose, man. Just let us have it. Tell us what's on your mind. You know, damn the Sabaeans, condemn the Chaldeans. You know, may Satan be cast into utter hell because of what he did to my family. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's when you find out what type of man he is. What type of man um, is Jesus? At any moment, he could have struck Pilate and Herod down. He could have mocked the disciples for leaving. He could have uh, condemned the devil for planning this out. He could have brought the nations low. I want to bring your attention to Luke chapter number 23. Mark doesn't record it for us, but in Luke's Gospel, he records for us the first saying of our Lord, at least insofar as we can tell. Verse 23 and 33, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Him. And He goes on to say later, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided His garments and cast lots. Remember in our text that that's what they're about to do. They're going to divide the garments and cast the lots. It's in this moment as He's went to Golgotha. He's being crucified. He's there upon the tree. And you read these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I know that it's easy this morning. 
especially whenever I, I don't know how else to do it, but, uh, but give you the account of Rome, their evil, their injustice. It's easy for us to, to want to say, how dare they? You know, what injustice? You know? As they administered the lashes across his back, the injustice, the mocking went forth, Jesus suffers. But interestingly enough, that's not Jesus' response. You know? He's in agonizing in the utmost pain, and what does he do? We find out what kind of man he is and what's upon his heart. He intercedes for his murderers as the great high priest. You know? Like he hangs there on the tree. And he's consumed not with himself, but with the people. He's totally in control. Don't give me the murder. Don't give me the wine. Um, he's, he's not a victim here. He understands what he's doing. He's got his eyes on the Father. He's got his eyes on the cross. And in some sense, he's got his eyes on you. Again, he doesn't look at those people that are even surrounding him with utter disdain. Man, and that's exactly what most of us would do. You know, like We do it every day. We do it with this nation, with this nation, and we do it with that nation. We do it with this family, and we do it with that family. We do it with this person that we work with, and that person. And it's just, and we almost feel justified in doing it. But what you're going to find later on is that in First Peter, our Lord tells us that, that that part of the reason that is recorded for us, and part of the reason that He does this, is so that we would know how to respond in suffering. That we wouldn't revile for reviling's sake. That we would follow in our Lord in in an understanding that even in the midst of suffering, you know, that it is a proclamation of the very Gospel and the cross that Christ bore and the cross in some sense that we are to bear in this world. That it is extremely important, men and women, boys and girls, that when you're persecuted, reviled for the name of Christ, that you respond well. It preaches volumes to the people. And it should preach volumes to you and to me. That's often when I find out what type of man I am. You know? Because that's in the moment it seems like you can't control what you say because who you are just pours out. You'll find out week after week, especially in the work condition or in the family or in the home, as, as you just lose control or you, or, or you do this or you do that, these things come upon you and you lose control and you find out exactly who you, you are. You know? And in this moment, we find out who Jesus is. In some sense. It's not all that He is, but it is, it is at least a part of who He is. And it's what makes Him Him. That as he's pressed beyond measure, he has full control not only of the events that are happening, but of his internal uh, temperature, his attitudes, and, and everything. And in that moment, he responds. You have to say this that if he's the Son of God, and, and it's unfathomable and inexhaustible to even think about that not only did our Lord um, continue sinless in every action, but in every thought, in every deed, but, but, but in every attitude as he approached men, and even in his reviling and in the persecuting, the mocking, the ridicule. Through the whole kingly episode, hell, king of the Jews. He has every right to just pour out judgment upon those people. And how, how does our, 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 the Son of God, our God-man, respond? Rightfully, appropriately, with affection towards them. Towards them. Not just us, but them. 
Jesus had, in some sense, affection for the ungodly. Not the Sunday school teachers, and not the uh, little boys and girls, and not the pastors and the preachers and the religious elite for the murderers. For the worst of the worst. For those who had just condemned Him to death, who, who, who contributed to, to His demise. That He would die by their hands, but He would also die for their hands. He would die in some sense by them, but He would also die accruing the curse for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is compelled in some sense by the ignorance and the blindness of the people who put Him there. That's not to say they're innocent though. You know? Um, ignorance is still culpable. Blindness is still culpable. Um, and that's why He prays for them. Forgive them. They've trespassed. They're wrong. They've sinned. They're not innocent. They've trespassed. They're wrong. They've sinned. They don't understand it all. And their ignorance and in their blindness, Father, forgive them. Are you that kind of man? As they revile you, as they persecute you, as all hell and the world, the flesh, and the devil come against you. You know? Are you like our Christ? Who's willing to sacrifice Himself for the sake of others. This was our Lord. Thank God this was our Lord. You know? Because 2,000 years removed, this is our only hope. Was His prayer answered? That's usually a theological academic uh, debate. Was His prayer answered? Of course it was. All of our Lord's prayers are answered. I love what J.C. Ryle writes. He says, the fruits of this wonderful prayer will never be fully seen until the day when the books are opened and the secrets of hearts are revealed. We have probably not the least idea, he says, how many of the conversions of God or to God in Jerusalem which took place during the next six months after the crucifixion were the direct reply to this marvelous prayer. Perhaps this prayer was the first step towards the penitent thief's repentance. Perhaps it was a one means of affecting the centurion who declared truly this was the Son of God. And the people who smote their breasts and went home. Perhaps the 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. Foremost, it may be that even among our Lord's murderers owe their conversion to this very prayer. The day will reveal it. There is nothing secret which shall not be revealed. This only we know that the Father heareth the Son always and may be sure that His wonderful prayer was heard. End quote. And may I add, possibly Simon the Cyrene and his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, to this. The one thing that is really remarkable about the text is that verse. And we just kind of skimmed over it as a detail to highlight, but not really much... To say, but it's really astonishing in and of itself. Not, not astonishing because Mark tells us his name. Not only his name, but his son's names. That may not seem like that big of a deal, and let's just be honest, it may not be. Um, but it does seem odd, doesn't it? Like in the midst of all the gory details of our Lord and the ridicule and the mocking and the charade, the being led to Golgotha, the place of the skull uh, where He would become a curse for us and in the midst of us, oh yeah, by the way, Simon the Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. That is, unless Simon, Alexander, and Rufus were known to Mark's readers. 
And how would they have been known by Mark's readers unless they were in the church of God during the writing? Many times in the New Testament books, a person is mentioned by name in a very nonchalant way for the same reason that maybe the crucifixion and scourging is mentioned. Why? Because it didn't need to be explained. They were known. Because the assumption is that the church already knows who these men are. They don't need to explain. It could be very well that Simon was not as well known to Mark, but clearly Alexander and Rufus were. And you can see men by that, by that name, particularly Rufus, mentioned in the epistles. Thus Mark identifies Simon as someone who, it might be like this. He's writing and he says, Simon the Cyrene. And in the conversation you say, who? And he says, you know, Alexander and Rufus is there. That guy. Oh yeah. It very well could be that here, our Lord Jesus Christ in His very darkest hour, under such darkness and suffering, that, it, that, that, that yet it changes this family for the glory of God forever. That, that, that it would influence the church for even ages to come. And that's why Jesus could look at Pilate in his eyes and in his very face and say, look, my kingdom is not of this world. You see? You want to see my kingdom operate? Look at me when I'm the weakest. Look at me when I'm the bloodiest. Look at me when the world mocks and scoffs and says, who is this man that he should rule over us? Know that that's when I'm the strongest. Know that, that I'm when the, uh, that's when I'm the most powerful. Know that that's when the gospel changes men. That's when the gospel pierces even the deepest and the darkest of hearts. That even as Rome presses a man into service, I'll use it as a means to show him Christ. And in doing so, change not only his life, but his son's lives and their son's lives and for generations to come. That that is the power of God in the gospel. That it looks to the world like utter foolishness. It seems like to the, the Jews a stumbling blocks because it's, it's affiliated with the curse of God. And it looks like, it looks like uh, foolishness to, 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 to the pagan world and to the Gentiles um, because who is this man, this king, who would rule over us? I mean, look at him. But to us, <laughs> it is the power of God unto salvation. You know, and it is when Jesus looks his weakest and at his lowest point, his bloodiest demeanor, and it's there where he builds his kingdom, even 2,000 years later. It's when he suffered and he died for us and he becomes a curse for us. You know? It's no wonder that the apostles speak so often and highly of that very act. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I love that. For he loved me. Well, why didn't Paul say he, he loves me? Isn't that true? Of course it's true for all those who are in Christ. But the apostles want to, in some way, highlight the very act of the cross as the highest expression of love. That's why Paul encourages you men or commands you men that you're to love your wives how, as, 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 as Christ loved the church. Now, in giving Himself for her. 
The ultimate act of love is, 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 is in service, but that service is found in, in, in selflessness, not selfishness, and in sacrifice, and in total submission to God's will in the pursuit of that person, even to the, the laying aside of rights and majesties and glories that were rightfully His. And He says, men, you're, I'm, you, that is your example. Paul says that in some sense, this is the foundation upon which my life, I live and move and have my being. And in some sense, that this is my, 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 my sounding board, that this is my launching pad. As I look at, not only at the love that Christ has for me, I find it rooted in the very act of the cross. That, 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 that instrument of death. That means of destruction in which all the uh, Satan, the world, the flesh uh, gather together to thwart God's plan. And it's in that very act in which they secure by means of God the salvation of the nations throughout the history of the world. Isn't that wonderful? Like, isn't that amazing? Doesn't that just elevate you as a Christian to know that even at their best, he still accomplishes God's plan and purpose? You know, that in our, that, 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 that is an imperative that we suffer and that we suffer well following in our Lord's example. And that when you're ever in the midst of suffering and you're wondering why and you're, and you're struggling with it, the, the, the place to go is to run to the cross, is to look to him. It is to find Jesus. It is not to leave Him for a moment. Like when you're wondering and questioning, how will I endure this? You look not to Job, you look to Jesus. You know, last week as we talk about suffering, it was not to elevate Job to a place of preeminence as, he, as if he's this, perfect, uh, this perfect model of who to follow. He was a sinner who, who, who knew that his Redeemer lived. And that's what you need. That's what I need. Persecution is coming, friends. Church, we must be ready. How do you prepare for something like that? <clears throat> the same way you prepare for a loss of a baby, or the loss of a job, or the loss of a loved one, or anything else that you can't prepare for. You cultivate a love for God and a love for the Word. Such that when that day comes, you know where to run. And that's to the cross. And when you're the weakest, Paul says that, that, that in that you find strength. That's what he says. Even he is, is on board, you know. A messenger of Satan buffeted me three times. And you know what? The Lord left it. Why? Because in weakness is where we find strength. The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews because it's a curse and it's foolishness to the world. Because what king could really rule so poorly? But to us, it is the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. You know? I don't know how to explain things like that again to my kids. I just try my best and I say, honey, you got to believe in Jesus. You know? You got to trust in God. How do I do that? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. Say with the Apostle Paul that when I look there, that he loved me. It's I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loves me. He loved me. And he loves you. You know? He gave himself for me. And if you'll trust him, 
It'll all, it'll all make sense in some sense. It won't really, but it will, if that makes sense. You know? It is the power of God. Um, I would just encourage you today to think on the cross. You know? In some sense. So why didn't they embrace Jesus? Because they didn't understand the cross. One thought it was a stumbling block. One thought it was foolishness. What do you think? You know? D.A. Carson says again, 2,000 years of pious Christian tradition have largely domesticated the cross, making it hard for us to realize how it was even viewed in Jesus' time. You know, you see a cross and there's right to get sentimental if you're in Him. Um, but at the same time, it's a healthy reminder that Jesus became a curse for us. That we were who were under the law and were bound to the law in all points. And to break one was to break it in all points. Thus the wrath of God abided upon us. But that in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, He became a curse for us so that we might not be accursed by God. And that if you'll come to faith by him, if you'll come and come to him by faith and repentance, um, you too can know the love of God in such a way, not only in this life but all throughout eternity. And the reason they wouldn't embrace Jesus, and the reason that most won't today, is because they'll never come to a place where they'll humble themselves under God's law and see the weight and terror and the judgment of their own sin. We'd take the cross and we domesticate it into this cute little symbol of our faith. Why? Because, because to look at it as it is is to show me my sin. You know? It's to show me God's law. And it's to show me that there is one who bore my curse. And without faith in him, I'll never enter into eternal life. You know? That's why people don't want, they want a sentimental Jesus. They want to frame him like. Like they would be, you know? Jesus would never punish me like that. I'd never punish me like that. There's a lot of things I'd never do, you know, that Jesus does every single day, you know? Like love people, give himself for people. I'm think, I thank God today that Jesus is not like me, but also thank to God today that I am like Jesus because of what he accomplished on my behalf, you know? Let us come to the place where we look at the cross not only as our salvation, but also as our salvation from something. That cross emblemizes the, the, my sin, God's law, and the fact that Jesus became a curse for me. He loved me. And if you'll come to Him by faith, you can say faithfully as well that He loves you too. That Jesus paid a debt that He did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And I pray today that in whatever realm of life you're in, suffering or no, that you'll run to Him. That you'll remember the cross. And that He'll exalt your heart to high and holy places regardless of the circumstances. And that if you need to suffer, you suffer well. And if you're not, prepare because it's coming. That's the theology and part of the cross. It teaches us what God requires of us, not only prior to salvation, but also after. So let us find it. And let us learn today. And let us rejoice as it pertains particularly to us.
And I pray that you find yourself on the right side of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ and Christ alone. What a privilege it is to know and to serve you. What a privilege. What a privilege. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to look to the cross? Father, would you help us to see it as it is? Father, may the joy be born out of a true understanding of what Jesus Christ came to do. That I was accursed, and he became that curse for us. Father, help us to see Jesus throughout the narrative, not as some helpless, hopeless little victim of social injustice. But help us to see our King of Kings and Lord of Lords in all of his regal dignity, totally in control, performing a work on our behalf for the glory of God. May we have a greater understanding this morning of the weight that our sin carries with us, thus help us to abandon it. But two, may we also find the love of Christ so overwhelming in that cross, such that um, your commandments are not grievous to us. God, help us to love the law of God because we love the God of the law. Help us, Father, and give us understanding um, such that this week will be a week not bared down by burdens, but the burdens are, released, are relieved and released that we might serve with liberty according to the law of liberty, um, the very life of God that he has for us. God, use us this week to be a, an example of Christ to a lost and a dying world, Father, whether it's in our prosperity and blessing of God whether it's in our suffering, suffering, possibly even chastisement of God, but help us to be the men and women and children that you desire for us to be and help us to honor you in all things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.